Christmas special. A very merry Christmas from Andrew, Dave and Katie. And welcome to Tux Jam episode 107. That does make us sound very old, doesn't it? Well, I'm joined by my two usual compatriots in very high spirits, I have to say, this evening. So watch out. Uh, Dave, how are you doing tonight? I am doing very well indeed. Thank you, Andrew. A Merry Christmas to you and all. Oh, yes. A Merry Christmas. I never said that. I should have said that because this is the Christmas show. Kevy, and how are you? Feeling Christmassy yet? Hello, hello, indeed I am. Gosh, I'm in full on Christmas spirit with Rudolph the Red Velvet Nose Reindeer on my top. <laughs> and what delights have we got for our listeners tonight? Something Christmassy, I hope, other than your jumper? Absolutely. Well, the thing is, everything about this episode is just screams Christmas, doesn't it? So we're going to have a look now. What was the one thing we used to always love was getting games. Yes, at Christmas. It was always about toys and games, or what we wanted and then we maybe didn't get. But uh, we wanted toys and games. So we're going to take a look at a retro gaming distro called Retro Pie, which, surprise, surprise, is actually for the Raspberry Pi. Now, at this time, we always put up trees in our houses. We're going to go a bit off the wall here. Not not pine, not Christmas trees. We're going to go at cherry trees. We'll look at the cherry tree note-taking app. And of course, as you rightly pointed out as well, Andrew, cherries are very often included in Christmas cakes. So, I mean, it's a whole double whammy, this. So we're bursting with festive. Not tenuous in the slightest, that look. It's not in the very, slightest. Very, very relevant and apposite. Definitely. That's it. So what festive delights have we seen on DistroWatch? So <laughs> pass us back to Andrew. What festive delight did you come up with? Well, I found that there were a grand total of no Christmas distros on Distro Watch today. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I beg to differ. We found two. Likewise. So. Uh, yeah. Well, why yes. did you throw so it back to me hap- This is what happens when you come in late. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's not 3CX. It's not 4M Linux. Next one. I don't see any. Okay. I don't see any, but what I did see was a distribution I've never heard of before called Mabox, uh, or Maybox, but I think it's pronounced Mabox. Of course, do that with your best Glasgow accent, it'll sound better. Oh, I'm on my box. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds way better. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> it is not, in fact, a Glaswegian distro. It's by someone called Daniel Napora, which is not particularly Glaswegian sounding name, uh, but the box is open box. I don't know what the ME stands for. Doesn't appear to be part of his name, but it's based on Manjaro. Aha! That's where the ME comes from. It's based on Manjaro and it uses open box, hence my box. Right. Okay, so I'm, you can put me back in my box now. So it is built on the latest LTS kernel, which is 6.6, .6, but you can still get it with the 5.4 LTS kernel if you prefer. It's, as I say, lightweight based on open box. It's got Conkey and it's got the wonderful JG menu, which I'll be honest, I have not heard of. But it's wonderful, it says, so it must be. It comes in at about 2.3 gigabytes, whatever flavour you tend to go for. So it's a fairly small distro, but certainly not the smallest out there. So if you're looking for something a little bit different, lightweight and based on Manjaro, and you're either in or out of your box, this might be for you. Excellent. And I should call out that this is another distro that is inspired by the, the, the very late, great and much lamented Crunchbang. Oh, is it? Indeed. I didn't notice that. Huh. Well, no, I mean, you, you actually accidentally picked up on a Christmas theme there. And, you know, yeah. you actually, I actually thought of it when you actually, the way you said it, you know, surely that's a kind of, that's a regular fight in a uh, Christmas morning when there's two brothers in Glasgow. He's my box. No, it's my box. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Uh, people from Glasgow <laughs> fight. was Christmas theme there. People from Glasgow fighting. I mean, that's just a dreadful <laughs> stereotype. Bordering in racism, Kevin. I'm really, really offended on behalf of all Glaswegians. I, actually, I'm not a Glaswegian. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> right, so Dave, what did you discover on Destroge? Right, so I found the incredibly festive NixOS, which is an independent distribution based around the Nix package and system manager. Now, you may be thinking, well, NixOS doesn't sound particularly festive of, at all, but if you look at the logo, the logo is definitely in the form of a snowflake made up of lots of individual pairs of uh, Rudolph's antlers. So there's definitely a, a Christmas theme going on here. There has been a suggestion made they're actually Lambda symbols, but uh, no, it is definitely Christmassy. This new version of NixOS, or NixOS, I'm not quite sure which one you would pronounce it, is version 23.11, which upgrades LLMVM build software and also introduces GNOME 45, a version called Riga. Lots of new features coming in with the new version of GNOME. And to be honest with you, as far as the release notes are concerned, there's not a lot else to tell you. Other than the fact, have we have we reviewed Nixos? Because looking mm. at it, it does seem familiar. Yes, we have uh, quite a while ago, but we uh, that were quite a while could mean two episodes ago, given my memory. But, yeah, uh, we, I'm sure we have. Yes, um, it, it sounds like something we have done recently because I remember the the whole idea of redistributable package builds and how everything kind of runs in isolation. Well, it was quite a while ago because it was. TuxJam 51 on the released on the 18th of May 2016. So that's quite a while ago. Well, oh. I wasn't part of the show then. Goodness, yes. Well, well yeah, both hosts. So it's just myself and Andrew. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that was a while ago. And in fact, we had two comments for that episode. We had one from Mike McGill saying, "Thanks for the play, chaps. Sorry to disappoint. My name's Irish, not Scottish. So we must have accidentally referred to my Scottish." <laughs> Oh, and Mike McGill, yes, because that's um, it's a Magnitude track that I would have picked. 
I was listening to Mike's stuff the other day. Yeah, he's good. All right. Well, yep. And also our uh, resident poster, Peter Patterson. I was waiting for that. Yep. So that's <laughs> yeah. our two comments. It's it's all it's all good being a Celtic cousin. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. So maybe it is time to maybe have a consider having another look at that because that was quite a while ago. Mm. Yes. Right then, so the festive delights continue. Now, everybody loves a bit of snow, don't they? They love the Alpine World Cup. So, of course, Alpine Linux. We cannot go without that. So, Alpine Linux version 3.19.0 has been released. Now, for those who don't know Alpine Linux, it's a community-based, community-developed operating system. It's totally independent. It's not based on Debian or Red Hat or anything. It is independent. It's from, I think it's from Norway, if I remember rightly. Some, I think it's a Scandinavian country anyway. And it's main, it's primarily designed actually for things like routers, firewalls, VPN and servers, etc. But you can actually run it as a desktop if you want. And this specific one, it's, I mean, it's got a bunch of different updates. The, it's a stable series, this particular update. And it's got Linux kernel 6.6, GCC 13.2, Parallel 5.38, so a few other ones, GNOME 45, KDE applications 23.08, KDE frameworks 5.112. But the big thing is, it is this is the first release which officially supports the Raspberry Pi 5. Mm. So, yeah, so this, mm. I think this is the first actual Destroyer that I've seen on Destroyer that announced that, as far as I'm aware. I mean, I, I'm not a serial viewer of Destroyer, I have to confess, but this is the first one I've seen that has declared that on the show notes, the release notes. So, yeah, so that's uh, Alpine Linux 3.19.0. Right, so I think it's about time for a tune. What do we say? Oh, yes. Something yeah. Christmassy, perhaps? Absolutely. Everything tonight is kind of Christmassy. So this is Zaton with Jingle Bells.
Right, so for our distro re- review this time around, as Kevin mentioned at the start, we are looking at uh, a distribution called RetroPie, which is, as the name might suggest, uh, a very, very, very old pie. So, Andrew, how did you get on with the, the tough crust of RetroPie? Well, as it happens today, I did eat a somewhat stale pie, for real folk. <laughs> But that is not what you're asking me about. (laughs) You're asking me about the distribution for the Raspberry Pi and, I believe, other small board computers that allows you to have a platform to emulate not quite all, but many old, mainly 8-bit platforms, some more modern, uh, that you might play games on. So it's retros and retro gaming that runs on the Raspberry Pi. First thing is the Retro Pi website's very nice. It's got nice clean instructions on it. Uh, it's as simple to flash to an SD card as any Raspberry Pi distribution. There's a number of ways to do it. I was, I'm on Linux, so I use the old DD method and being careful not to wipe my hard drive when using a low level write to, uh, an SD card. So I did that and then I shoved it in my Raspberry Pi 4 is busy, so I couldn't shove it in that. So my Raspberry Pi 3, it was available, so I put it in there. And I had an old PlayStation 3, PS3 controller. It actually isn't a Sony one. It's one of these knockoff ones you could buy in a supermarket that doesn't have any branding that means anything. But it works fine, and I've used it before, so I used that. And I shoved the USB dongle that came with it into the Raspberry Pi, booted it up with the SD card inserted into it. All worked flawlessly. And then it just went through, and I had to, in the config, when it told me I had to press the up button, I pressed the up button. When I pressed the circle button, or whatever it was called, I pressed the circle button. At the end, I had one slight glitch, and it said it asked me to press the hotkey. And I mm, don't know what the hotkey should be. This is where reading the manual does help. So I went back and read the instructions, and it turns out this is the key that you use in combination with pressing other buttons to quit out and reset and do other sort of meta things. It's like a meta key, really. And on the PlayStation 3 controller, the home button is the ideal key for that. So I'd, that was a little hiccup, but it was just a result of me not reading the manual. One thing I did decide to do, and I didn't like, the default recommended layout for a PlayStation 3 controller had what would be the X button on a PlayStation being the back key, and what would be the circle button on a PlayStation controller being the select key. That, to me, is backwards from what I'm used to in a PlayStation 4. I went through the process again and switched them around. I'm so used to doing that the PlayStation 4, to have them backwards was, yeah, it was just like going to mus- mess with my muscle memory, so I had to do that as well. Not a problem, but I thought maybe that's the difference between a PlayStation 3 and a PlayStation 4, I don't know. But well, that's one thing I did differently. And then I hit the next problem, and I guess this is the problem that you're going to have with RetroPie in many emulation places, where it says in big letters on the website, we don't provide the ROMs because of copyright problems. You have to go and find them yourself. In the old days, that used to be fine. You could just go to ROM sites and download them. But now you go to ROM sites and they're just full of adware and bloatware and trying to make you download all kinds of garbage and pictures of scantily clad women pop up when you're not expecting them. So it's probably not safe for And work. also when the wife walks into the room as well, guaranteed. <laughs> yes, indeed. They have a yes. radar for that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And um, yeah, so I was less than impressed. But Kevy pointed me in the direction of archive.org. Archive.org have a lot of stuff, but quite a lot of their stuff you can only really play in their online emulators. So it was not that 
I mean, they had quite a lot of downloadable ROMs, but there was quite a few things that I wanted to get, which I couldn't because, well, I guess there was copyright problems even there. I did find a YouTube video by, uh, I think, a YouTuber called Bytes and Bits, which was quite useful in guiding me in setting up the Spectrum emulator, the ZX Spectrum. For those of you outside the UK, this was a company set up by Clive Sinclair in the early, well, late 70s, early 80s and produced the ZX80, ZX81, and the ZX Spectrum, which was by far the most popular. And I think if you're in the States, if I said Timex, the Sinclair Timex, something or other, that's probably what you might know it as. So very popular 8-bit micro here in the UK, uh, loads of games. So I didn't have one myself, but I had lots of friends that did, so I thought I'll give that a go. I went to this Bytes and Bits YouTuber and that guided me through the process of setting up a Spectrum emulator, which is really quite fiddly because out of the box, the keyboard for the Spectrum won't work. You couldn't use the joystick, uh, the, the controller. I followed the instructions Bytes and Bits gave in his YouTube videos. Some of it worked. I got the keyboard working, but I just could not get the PS3 controller to work with any Spectrum games. So that was a little bit of a frustrating experience. Manic Miner, I think, was the very first game I ever played in the ZX Spectrum. So I got that downloaded and I got that working with the keyboard. It was as frustrating and hard and I was as bad at it as I was back in the 80s. Couldn't get off the first level. Nothing wrong with the emulator, I should say. It's just that it's actually quite a tough game. In that video, he also recommended a place called EMU Emu Paradise. Said that was a great place to get ROMs. I went to that. What I wanted was to get the Centipede game, because that's one of my favourite games. Recently, I went to the Cambridge Museum of Computing History and I played Centipede on an original arcade machine with the rollerball and uh, the buttons. And I loved it. So I thought, well, yeah, I really want to play uh, Centipede. Not on the Spectrum, but on an arcade machine. Emu Paradise, this website, seems to have pretty much shut down. I mean, the website still works, but when you get to a ROM, try and download it, you get a link to an apologetic post by the maintainers of the site saying, sorry, it's just got too difficult with copyright problems to do this service anymore, so it doesn't work. Actually, in the end, I never managed to download Centipede. I've got something else to say about Centipede in just a minute, but I did go to the MameDev website. Uh, Mame is the arcade emulator that I believe is used in RetroPie. So the MameDev They've come to an arrangement with some of the original copyright holders of certain games. So I got an arcade version of something called Super Tanks, uh, which I got to work. It was quite difficult as well. You know, to a modern gamer, these retro games from the early 80s are very difficult. I managed to get uh, Super Tanks working and actually managed to kill some baddies in that. So I was quite pleased. It worked perfectly, I should say. And the sound worked perfectly on this and all the Spectrum games I tried as well. So that was good. Well, I should say I did find the RetroPie instructions good, but there was little gaps in them I found where a beginner would get lost. Like for one thing, I wanted to transfer my ROM files. I would download them on my laptop and then it would be, I could use a USB stick. There was a way it documented of doing that. And I did try using the USB stick method and it did work. But I couldn't really be bothered taking a USB stick out of one machine and plugging it to the Raspberry Pi and out again and back in. So I tried to go the SSH route and use SCP. So it's the SSH secure copy. So that way I could just copy ROMs directly from my laptop onto the RetroPie. 
because the Retro Pi doesn't have a browser or anything like that, not that I found anyway. So I could download it in my browser on my laptop and then use SCP, SSH copy to put it in the right folder for emulation. But the problem I had was I couldn't see how to get to enable SSH. Uh, there was instructions in the RetroPie website. Those instructions kind of assumed that you were doing it the first time you booted it up, whereas I wasn't. I'd already booted up the first time and then what you had to do was quit out of emulation station. Then in the command line, type raspy-config to get into raspy config to enable SSH. And then, and I guess this next bit, you had to type emulation-station to start emulation station again, which is how uh, the front end basically for RetroPie. That wasn't documented in the instructions for how to get SSH working. So yeah, it's a nice website, nice instructions, but I felt, well, if I was a beginner and I just wanted to play the games and get the ROMs, yeah, there's a few gotchas like that where you'd have to either do your homework and learn something new or consult somebody who knew a bit more about Linux than they assumed you would on the RetroPie website. Anyway, so back to Centipede. I really wanted to play Centipede, but I just couldn't find anywhere that I could download a ROM. At least maybe there was a site full of adware and bloatware downloads that I had to evade that I just couldn't be bothered with. Um, but I never got my Centipede ROM, sadly. But I did read a little bit about Centipede. Now, did you know that the Centipede arcade game that was made by Atari in 1981 was developed by two coders, one of which was female, which was very unusual at that time, and still is, I'm sad to say, quite unusual. But the f not only was it a female coder, but the game was specifically designed to appeal to women. And I must be a woman because I love Centipede. It's my favourite arcade game. <laughs> <laughs> it had no sort of male stereo. It wasn't like a fighting game with some muscly guy like Tekken or Street Fighter or whatever. It was designed deliberately to appeal to women and women apparently really liked it at the time. Uh, I did not know this. The other thing that amused me about it is I went through and clearly there was a lot of rip-offs of the, the concept of the game and centipede. Some people just called it centipede. Others called it millipede. Millipede. Uh, so, I remember millipede. Yeah, yeah. yeah millipede. <laughs> uh, there was a game, a version for the Spectrum called Spectipede. There was caterpillar, with spelt with a C. There was caterpillar, spelt with a K. And here's my absolute favourite name: Megalegs. <laughs> <laughs> Megalegs. <laughs> they could have gone mega. So that's where I came from, right? <laughs> Megalegs. Yes, Megalegs. Yeah, I, I don't uh, know why. I just found that hilarious. I was killing myself laughing. <laughs> you know, I could imagine a lot of people staying up late. We're going to get sued if we call it centipede. What should we call it? Well, megapede. Somebody's already done megapede. Megalegs. That's brilliant. Yeah, let's go for the megalegs. Anyway, so yeah, I had a lot of fun with RetroPie. The emulation was generally very good. If I had more time to play retro games, I probably would be spending a lot more time with RetroPie. Sadly, I don't have enough time to do all of the modern day stuff I want to do. I have to be honest though, when it comes to retro gaming, I really like to play with the real hardware. It's not quite the same to me to play it on an emulator. I mean, if, yeah, it's better than nothing, I suppose. But I'd rather go back and play it in an original Spectrum, to be honest, or an arcade cabinet, which I obviously cannot. You can't have lots of arcade cabinets cluttering up your house unless you're mega rich with mega legs. RetroPie is great, but not all that straightforward to use, in my opinion. So that's what I thought. Kevy, how did you get on with it? Very straightforward install. I just used Pi Imager. I didn't even bother going to the site, just purely because I remember last time when I downloaded and then used the Pi Imager with the 
the one I downloaded, it, did, it, it argued with me quite a bit, so I just thought, let's have a look. So, oddly enough, RetroPie, when you clicked on gaming distros, was the second one. Not the first one. I can't remember what the first one was. But on the list for the, in the Pi image, it actually se- suggested it was the second distro. So that was fine. I th- took a look on the SD card and I was, it was a 32 gig card I put in. So I thought, yep, that's fine. Had to double check on it. Oh, good. It's created all the home folders and even the actual ROM folders, everything. So I thought, yep, no bother. What I'll do is I'll stick a bunch of ROMs onto it. And a lot of the ROMs are tiny. And it just said, no space, no space. I'm going, you are not telling me that RetroPie is 32 gig. No chance. So I fired up Gparted and noticed that it was well under one gig, but I had 31 point something gig of unallocated space. <laughs> For flip's sakes. I just unmounted the card and then just edited the partition so it took up the whole SD card. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that was that difficult to do, but... Uh, could it not do that of uh, out of the box without me doing that? But anyway, anyway. Well, so sorry, sorry, Kev, just sorry to interject, but actually mine did do that for me. It did resize. The, I saw it doing it uh, in the first boot. Oh. It did. It did oh. resize for me. So I don't know why we had a different experience there. Oh, oh, it did it at boot time, did it? The, on the first boot, I think it. Ah, it, it, it okay, the first right. boot it went. See, I I didn't even take it out of my computer. I just flashed the image and then used my file browser to go onto it. Yeah, because I had right. the ROMs already on my PC. Oh, yeah. right, yes. Okay, in the first boot on the Raspberry Pi, ah. it enlarges it. That's, yes, that's oh, where okay. you came across. Right. Okay, so that's interesting to know. That's good, uh, actually. Mm-hmm. I've got it in my head that if you're using the Raspberry Pi Imager, the official one, there is actually an option in the advanced settings that will automatically expand the file system for you once the image is being written. So you don't have ah. to go through the boot, the boot right. cycle first, I think. Fair enough. Okay, then. That's fine, then. Right. Now, at this point, I should point out, I mean, Andrew mentioned it, that to use the external storage as a US, if you want the USB thumb drive to have all your ROMs on there, if you want to use it almost like an external hard drive, then that's fine. But what you need to do, now this isn't overly, it's not, it's a bit fiddly, but it's not difficult. On the root of the drive, create a folder called RetroPie-mount. So all lowercase and no spaces. And then, with your RetroPie on, in RetroPie, you need to go to Configuration page, and then go to RetroPie Setup, and then select Configuration slash Tools, and this brings up another menu. And what you need to do is go to the very, very bottom of that menu. You can't see it on the screen. It's further down. It takes up more space. And there's one called USB ROM Service. Okay, and select Enable, and then you click OK. And then what you do is press start on your controller and then go to reboot the system. And you do that from the quit menu. So now when RetroPie started up, you make sure it's booted, put your USB drive in, took about a minute roughly where it was doing things and you could, it was giving you a message on it. And once about the minute was done, it said completed. And what you've got then is you take the USB drive out. Put it onto your computer and everything will be set up. It pretty much just copies the home folders layout. That's all it really does. Okay, into that folder that you've made and you can put stuff in there. So that's an easy way if you don't want to go SSH. Upon boot, it's very clear that presentation is actually part of this. It's lovely, you know, lovely flash screen, you know, 
when you're booting, you get a nice retro-style joystick appearing as a you know, so it's the logo of RetroPie. And then it follows with a home, with a screen, sorry, showing that the ROMs are being scanned. And then this actually affects what your home page looks like, which I really liked. So it scanned and it detected that I had like Atari ST. It had, I had MAME ones and I had SNES ones on it. And that was what came up, you know. So it was like I didn't have all the emulators listed, just the ones which had ROMs on, which it found ROMs for. So I like that touch. Then it asked me, right, we detected a controller. So I had a SNES controller, which uh, I can't be bothered going to get. It's, Dave's already seen this, but it is literally just a copycat SNES controller. I bought this a few years ago on eBay for literally under a five, and I didn't expect it to work. It's worked nicely, and I'm still using it. It asked me to do all the things, and obviously the big difference with mine and Andrew's was Andrew's would have thumbsticks on it, of course. So when it said move the thumbstick up, move the thumbstick down. I'm like, there's no thumbstick on this. This is long before the days of thumbsticks. All you've got to do is just press and hold a button, any button. Just press and hold, and it just says, okay, we're skipping on. And as I found out as well, the hotkey is one you... I just kind of said, yeah, yeah, go for default. And then realized, oh, no, that was quite important. <laughs> so I had to redo it. Well, so... so- Sorry, Kevin, how do you go for the default? Because it actually just asked me to press a button and there was no default for me. Well, it said it at the bottom. It said, if you'd like to go, just use the default option, press return. Oh, I never had that, or at least I never noticed it. Interesting, I skipped mine and in skipping it, it said, you, we really recommend you should have something for this for the hotkey. Do you want to use, we'll just use the default. Yeah. But it didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what the default actually was in this case. Yeah, that was the problem. That was my problem. So yeah. I just kind of, I just hit return and that was it. Yeah. So I did that. And it, the, the home screen kind of leads you to is it reminds me, reminded me a wee bit of the way Cody used to be laid out. Yeah. So very yeah. much horizontal across the menus where I actually quite liked it. To be honest, when I saw it, I actually thought, yeah, I remember I used to, I preferred the old layout of Cody. It was nicer. It may not have been as functional, but it was nicer. As I said already, it doesn't list everything. So, I mean, if it was to list every emulator it had, you, your screen would be huge, or the, the, the menu bar would be huge. It only lists the ones that you have. Now, this is where I ran into my first issue, my first major issue. And that was, I could not get the sound to work. By default, I went and checked, and it was HDMI was the, uh, Default output. And, okay, my monitor does not have speakers, so that's not an option for me. So I thought, right, press the menu, select sounds, and I, the only options you get are headphones or HDMI. And the Pi that I was using was Pi. I was just on my Pi 400 just now. In fact, it's still on it. And that doesn't have a headphone jack. So I was like, hmm, oh, okay, then I've got my Bluetooth headphones. That's no problem. I went to the Bluetooth settings, paired my headphones, and I still didn't get any sound. And it was at that point where I noticed I went into paired devices. And <laughs> it actually said, cannot detect buttons. So it was treating my headphones like a controller. So I was like, oh, this is really annoying. Okay. So I tinkered about quite a few minutes in and out of things and check, and I just couldn't get anywhere. So I decided at this point... Right, let's actually go on, do what I should have done in the first place, look at the RetroPie forums, and sound through the Bluetooth is not enabled by default. Right Now, what I think I'm going to do here is 
I think I'm going to put these steps onto the show notes. I know we don't normally do this detailed show notes, but I do think this is important because I really struggled to find these and it took me a couple of attempts. So thankfully, with the Pi 400, this was, I mean, this may, may or may not work for others, but I imagine it would, right? So first of all, if you press F4, it takes you completely out of the nice UI and drops you into a shell, okay, a terminal. The first thing you have to do is install Pulse Audio dash module dash Bluetooth, just using sudo apt install that, okay? Then you have to add the user to the Bluetooth group, which is just sudo add user, and the default user is pi, pi, and then Bluetooth, okay? The next thing we had to do was edit the file slash etc slash pulse slash default dot pa, and you have to add the line load dash module space module dash switch dash on dash connect. Okay. So again, I'm not really expecting you to follow along. I'm just, I will have it in the show notes. So you've got to save and exit. Nano's on it by default. So I just use nano. Use whatever editor you're comfortable with. Then you have to edit the file slash etc slash Bluetooth slash main dot conf. And there's the general section and you need to add the line enable. Now, this is a capital E enable equals source with a capital S, comma sync with a capital S, comma media with a capital M, comma socket with a capital S. Okay. Sorry for being so specific, but just in case anybody's actually trying to do this from the podcast, I want to make sure that they can. So again, save and exit the file. Now, just reboot the system then with sudo reboot because I actually couldn't figure out how to get back into the graphical mode pseudo reboot, but you have to reboot at this point anyway for the Bluetooth stuff to take effect. So then when you're back on your home screen, select Bluetooth, pair your device. If you have paired it, forget it, and then pair it again. And then one last thing you need to do is for connecting. In the Bluetooth settings, go to configure Bluetooth connect mode and select background. Otherwise, if your headphones are not around at time of boot, they will not connect. Okay, so make sure that's set to background so it constantly checks for it. Now we're done. Now, okay, that's not major to anybody who's useful, who's used the Linux terminal for a few years. But at the end of the day, I'm not trying to do a niche thing here. I was trying to connect Bluetooth headphones. Surely that's a really simple thing. And to be honest, that's the default audio method for most people. So that was a very long-winded and cumbersome way. There's another wee setup issue. Now, this wasn't a game changer. But I don't know if you guys noticed, by default, if you use this on a monitor rather than a TV, then you will get a black border around it. Did, you, did either of you notice that? No, I didn't actually. No. There's a black border. No. Right. It's not mega, but it's, well, on my screen, it was maybe about 8 mil all the way around. A black border, a complete black border. And I was like, I'm, I, I was just like, I'm not wanting that, to be honest. This is actually the underscan option. And what it is, it's because TVs by default will actually overspill a bit. So it's a compensation thing. So it's assuming you're going to connect this to a TV rather than a monitor. So it's actually dead easy. All you've got to do is go to the configuration again, just standard configuration, select raspy config, and then select display options, go to underscan and select no. Okay. That's all you do. You will need to reboot, though, again, for this to take effect. 
One thing that you will notice, and this is maybe why Dave had maybe a bit of an issue with this distro, is that it's designed for everything to be done through a joystick or a controller. All the controls, everything, are designed to work. And the thing is, it actually works very nicely. The only time you need a keyboard is when you go into the deeper parts, like where I was talking about there. But even then, if you don't need to type anything, the controllers still work in those kind of deeper setting parts. But it, it takes you out of the graphical and drops you to the terminal pretty quickly. You kind of notice then you need a keyboard, which is where the Pi 400 was ideal for this. On the Super Nintendo, because that was my, my favorite console when I was younger, B was select. And in this, by default, B took you back a stage. A selected. So it was a wee bit kind of alien, but I didn't want to switch them around like Ander did because that would have switched them around in game, which would have meant you were actually the wrong way around when you were playing the game. I lived with it for the actual screens. So the one thing that I did notice, the ROMs were listed very nicely in alphabetical order. Pressing B on the controller loaded a ROM. I didn't have any issues. It is just a list. It's a text-based list. The artwork isn't there by default. However, if you want the artwork, that's fine, right? If you press start on your controller and then there's the option at the top is scraper. Select scraper and scrape now. A word of warning, right? A real word of warning here. If you're like me and you've got thousands of ROMs, don't do this unless you've got a lot of time because it asks you to confirm which art you want and which game it actually is for every single ROM. Oh. Yeah, so oh, literally dear. don't do it. For something as purely aesthetic, don't do it. Don't do it. So unless you want to spend a lot of time, just don't do it. Now, the other thing I did notice was I thought, wait a minute, I'm doubtful that RetroPie has its own emulators. You know, it's not built in. Rather, it's all it's really doing is pulling emulators together. And when you're kind of used to the emulators, very often a lot of the settings are very different. So I thought, right, let's see if I can get... So I went on to the RetroPie webpage and found very quickly from reading, hitting tab on the keyboard when you're using a particular emulator will open up options, but those options are specific to that emulator only. So if you want to configure the SNES one to a certain way, press tab when you're using the SNES one, will edit the options purely for that. That was my issues with setting it up, right? But I have to confess, once I set it up, it ran beautifully. I didn't need to touch the keyboard even once after that. Everything ran nicely. And the best of it was we guy, well, maybe best, worst, can't figure out which one. We guy actually said, oh, what's that? You've got a controller. I'm going to play this. So, of course, I lost my computer. Well, I didn't lose the computer because he wasn't using it, but he was using my screen. <laughs> he was using the screen for the best part of three days. And it was, it was really funny. And I was showing, yeah, this is actually where gaming has just gone so much the way of the, the modern world with the modern kids. You know, they can do, you can do everything. You can do all the games now you can't really lose. He was getting so angry. <laughs> He started playing Super Mario Kart, and I'm going, you do not break that controller. That's my only controller for the SNES. <laughs> he was getting so angry because he, he was, he, I think he had played it about maybe about six races, and he couldn't figure out why he wasn't in pole position or winning any of them. I'm going, no, you actually had to be good. You didn't just get this a first place just for doing the thing. You actually had to be good at this game. And then he was trying Super Mario World. That was hilarious. He just got so frustrated with it. He tried Super Mario Brothers, the original. 
And again, he was going absolutely nuts. And then I heard him yelling and shouting, and I'm going, what's going on here? He was playing Street Fighter 2 and didn't know any of the buttons or any of the moves. And he he basically, he, he managed to win his first game. I thought, this is easy. And then got destroyed in every other match he played. <laughs> so it was actually quite funny watching because I'm thinking, yeah, this is actually pretty typical of the teens these days. They just think they can go ahead and win everything. So this is actually, I think this would be a good thing for teaching me that maybe patience, but certainly endurance, you know, no, you're not going to get it first time. You actually have to work for it. <laughs> so the gaming industry's got a, you know, a lot to say. And the other thing that I've forgotten about, to be honest, and shows you, I've gone into this habit. He couldn't fathom out this continues. You only had so many lives. Yeah, he was that used to just, oh no, you die, you respawn, you die, you respawn, you die, you respawn. And he got so angry when games were saying game over. He goes, oh, what do you mean game over? Like, That's it. You've got to restart all over again. <laughs> The the one thing I did like, actually, was the ability to save. You can save a room exactly in the state where you are now. So if you get called for dinner or if you have to leave straight away, you don't have to get to a save point. Uh, this is one thing I do like about it. And most of them, the image are like this. Uh, it's very easy just to click save. Just click menu options, save. And you can return to that exact point later. What did I think? I thought, great, but setup is there. But one thing that I would say was, you look at, I mean, I played SNES, and I mean, there's, I've got about 2,000 SNES ROMs. Of course, I owned every single cartridge, for anyone listening. The SNES thing that was brought out, the SNES Mini, had 20 games. Yeah? You know the one I'm meaning? Mm-hmm. Yes? Had 20 games. If you can find it, it's going for over 300 quid. You know, you look at this, for the sake of a few thousand, couple of thousand games, for the sake of the price of a Pi case and a controller, you know, if you can take the time, this is well worth it, right? That's what that would be my opinion. But it's not so a bit like the kind of old style games. You're not going to get the hang of it straight away. It does need tinkering. It does need learning. So that was my two pennies. Dave, how did you get on? Well, now, so it was fully my intention to set this up on the Pi 400 and test it from there. And I really, really wish I had. Instead, I made the very stupid and somewhat ill-advised decision to install it on my laptop as they had a setup script available uh, to install a RetroPie on their GitHub repo. Simples, so I thought. I lost track of time about half an hour into the installation process. It installed loads of things, downloaded lots of things, compiled lots of things. Uh, but it did do it. It did do it first time with no issues. So it, it really is just a case, if you're going to put it on a computer, an established uh, Linux machine, clone the repo, run the script, and then go and make a pasta bake or something because you're going to be there for a while. <laughs> um, Andrew and Kevin both mentioned about the emulation station that sits in front of RetroPie. It then kicks off whatever platform that you need behind it. Now, but I think when you do the controller setup the, the, on the first launch that it's done before it actually takes you into emulation station proper because you need emu the controller setup in order to be able to navigate emulation station. And I think it was around about at this point that I realized I'd actually made a fundamental error. As Kevy has already called out, my controller is my keyboard. I do not have a gaming controller, which is no surprise because I'm not a gamer. I may have mentioned that once or twice before. Just to give you an idea of, of what kind of problem this represents, is controller setup requires, and this is from memory, a D-pad 
A, B, X, and Y in a diamond shape, two left triggers, two right triggers, and two analog sticks. Now, that's approximately 22 points of contact. Now, a handheld controller typically requires two thumbs, two or four fingers, but a keyboard requires a lot more fingers than you may possess. And that's irrelevant of how many fingers you actually possess. So what I had was WASD on the left, look it up, PL semicolon and apostrophe on the right to emulate the, the, the diamond-shaped four buttons on the right-hand side of like your SNES controller. Thumbs for things like spacebar and, and lower uh, letters. And then the typical thing where you've set another key and you can't remember what it is, you then go and hunt and peck for it, and then you forget where your other things should be when you try and go back to the, original, the correct keys. An absolute nightmare um, front to end. <clears throat> so the emulation station itself, Kevin, you said that it was kind of Kodi-like. You can't actually install Kodi as an option mm. as part of the emulation station. So it's available as an add-on. So you've got a full Kodi build in there as well, uh, if you wish it. But the front end itself, it really is such a nice interface. It's very smooth. The, to coin a phrase, it is a buttery interface. It really is. If you already have ROMs in place for your platform of choice, the on the, the very front screen of the emulation station, when you, you do your left and right, uh, my A and D in this case, it switches between the different platforms. And the graphic representation of that platform is really high quality. And that was really nice to see. It kind of adds to the immersiveness of the interface. As has already been mentioned, there are tons of ROMs around, uh, unofficially, of course. And I went and got two libraries of games, uh, Atari 2600, which disappointed me because the one game I wanted wasn't on there, and the ZX Spectrum library. And just with those two libraries, I had 462 games available. Now, that's made choosing a game a bit of a laborious process, as Kevin pointed out earlier. When you're selecting a game, you, you have to up and down to scroll the, the list. Now, scrolling is adaptive. You hold the button down, it'll do it one at a time, and then after a short while, it'll do a page at a time, and then after a short while, it'll do the first two letters at a time. But I, even... I'm trying to think what... It was Tanks on the Atari I was trying to go for. And I, I held down... S, in this case, for quite some time before it got anywhere near the T's, only to then find that Tanks wasn't there. So, <laughs> very disappointing result for, for quite a large amount of effort expended. Now, the platforms that are supported within RetroPie is actually quite amazing. It's, it's quite comprehensive. You've got multiple versions of different Atari consoles and computers, Almost every Sega and Nintendo handheld that was made, I say almost, there are some that are missing. Um, some of the, the, the home-based home consoles as well. The ZX Spectrum, which is kind of where I gravitated towards because that was my first proper computer. So there's something in there for pretty much everybody. When it comes to gameplay, gameplay is very much dependent, very much dependent on the game you're playing and the platform on which the game was originally intended for. So trying to play a tank-style game on an Atari 2600 with a keyboard, no. Trying to play Beachhead on the Spectrum with a keyboard, well, that's, yes, because that's, that's what you had. Unless you had the um, uh, any of the joystick add-ons, your keyboard was your controller. But what you then had to remember, and I think, who said this? I think it might have been, I can't remember, one of the two of you mentioned it, that you were having problems when you were playing a Spectrum game, that your controller didn't work. Yes, that well, the was, reason that was, your controller didn't yeah. work. That was sorry, that was you, Andrew. The reason the controller didn't work is because it's expecting you to use a keyboard. So the controller does not come into play. 
So whatever the keyboard options are for your game, usually something like QAO and P for up, down, left, right, space for fire. Classic, it would be expecting classic. you to None use those. QAOP. Yes. Yeah. The, well, <laughs> well, that that was that was a Sinclair designation. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Dave. But the thing is, that there was, and I think it was part of RetroArch, which Emulation Station uses. RetroArch allows you to map movements of your controller to keys inside your emulator. So I mapped right for, for, per game. So I did do went through the process, which I saw in that bytes and bits video. He explained how to do that, and I followed that, but it didn't work. Uh, I don't know why. Right. Okay. Did you try any of the controller options that would have been built into the Spectrum game? So often you would have like your Kempston joystick. Some of the later games allowed for the interface to plug in yes, controllers. I did try that again, as explained in the bytes and bits video that I watched, but that didn't work either. Ah, oh, that's, that's unfortunate. I'm going to pursue that. I'll mention that in a second. But in terms of, of gameplay, I did notice that even with my i7, there is a noticeable control lag. I noticed it more on the Spectrum games than I did with the Atari ones. I would imagine that, in fact, having a, a Bluetooth controller has probably increased that level of lag because of how Bluetooth works. But I would imagine this to be more of a symptom of running a gaming emulator on a multitasking operating system rather than running what is essentially a single program on a microprocessor, which is literally doing nothing else. Talking about the original games. So you have to take that obviously into account when you're you're playing these things. There's a lot of layers of, of abstraction between you and the device you're holding on your hand and the things you're seeing on the screen. There's a lot of translation that has to happen. So when you press up, you're going to see double, triple digit latency in milliseconds, not seconds, uh, before your action on the controller actually represents something on the screen. And there's not a lot you can do about that, unfortunately. But otherwise, the, the the graphics on the gaming is really nice. The visual experience is quite something, particularly if you grew up with some of these games. I found playing Beachhead, which is a game that I played stupid hours <laughs> yes. on the ZX Spectrum. Well, you, you had to because it took probably about four minutes to load from tape. So when you're spending so much time loading stuff up from a tape, uh, you want to you know get your money's worth in terms of time. It was quite nostalgic. Now, the question that you're probably thinking to yourself is, you know, Dave, he's not a game gamer. He's, he's not going to bother with this. Uh, he's going to go into the bin. You're wrong. I'm actually going to play with this some more because I think that as a platform, it has a lot of promise. And that this is probably a bit weak of me to say this because I think RetroPie has been around for quite some time. But from somebody who's coming into this, having used RetroPie for the first time, I, I like what it delivers. I like what it represents. Obviously, not until I get myself a controller. I don't think I should touch this again until I get a controller because the experience of trying to do this on a keyboard, it really takes away from it. It really detracts from what the platform, what RetroPie as a distribution, which is what it ultimately is, is trying to achieve. So I'm doing no service to it by trying to do it through a standard QWERTY keyboard. I'm also tempted to consider the option of creating a handheld version of the RetroPie using like a small five-inch screen on top of a Pi with a Bluetooth controller and see how that works. So I might actually, once I've, I've had a go with it on the computer, I may well consider sort of doing that as a project. So from that perspective, my exposure to Retro Pi has actually been a phenomenal success. And I bet you didn't expect me to say that. No, I did not. As you say, uh, as you said, I, 
had you marked down as a non-gamer or maybe a, just a very occasional gamer, but you've clearly got a bit of, like me, the retro nostalgia itch needs to be scratched, perhaps. I came from the generation when home computing and, and gaming using home computers kind of exploded. Mm. Just as just the, the home computer market was starting to find its feet. But before the games consoles came in and ruined it, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, yeah, because so, that is exactly how I viewed it. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the old 8 but the Spectrums, the BBC Micros, the Commodore 64s, or the Vic 20 before that, mm. and I could go on naming stuff, maybe Apple, Apple 2s even before that. Apple 2, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All of these things, you could play games in them, but at some point you would think, I could write my own software. I could write my mm-hmm. own games. And yes, when the Nintendo NES came out, it was kind of like, yeah, don't bother with that anymore. You, yeah, you have to be a professional games developer to write a game. Um, right, yeah. right. Which, and it t- takes some of the fun away from it, from, from yeah. it as well. I mean, to be honest, it was inevitable that, like, anything, you know, like, when I'm, you know, well, I say it's inevitable because, you know, as computers got more powerful, you'd have to have bigger teams and more resources to develop. That's obvious now in retrospect. But there was something about being able to code on the same platform as you played that was really, really pushed me forward as a youngster, and I'm sure many other people too. Yeah, don't forget that also the we are of that generation where the fact that you were able to achieve playing games on a system where a butterfly flapping its wings in eastern europe could actually jog the memory pack and crash the computer a little zx81 joke there for for those that remember that (laughs) being able to do these kind of things being able to load something from tape making sure that you set the volume levels correctly make sure you got the cables correctly the ZX81 design floor that allowed you to plug the power supply into the TV out <laughs> port. Um, you know, all, the, all those things were part of the computing experience of the 1980s. And it's like all of that has been stolen. And I'm, I'm not saying that this is, this is going to take us back to that particular era. But nostalgia, it means a lot. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And obviously it's not like it used to be, but... Yeah, it, it does mean mean a lot. So something like this, for somebody who is a self-professed non-gamer, maybe I am. Yeah, what you just said really resonates with me. And of course, we should also mention that the whole point of the Raspberry Pi originally was to get back to that era. And the fact that you have models A and B Raspberry Pis is harking back to the model A and B of the BBC Micro which was also developed in Cambridge. You know, so Cambridge is where Sinclair was, where I mentioned ZX Spectrum, ZX81. It was where Acorn was that produced the BBC models A and B. And it's where the Raspberry Pi is based now. So it's not an accident that all these things have come together. And, no, uh, <laughs> no, not at all. No, actually, yeah, like I said, brilliant, uh, fantastic. I'm actually glad that you you actually had a good time with us, Dave, because I, I, you were the one I was kind of worried about thinking, is he even going to want to even try this? <laughs> you but- even you even said it. I think both of you said, are you sure you're, you're happy to, to review this? And I'm yeah, like, yeah. yeah, go on then. No, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad we did now. Right then, and this is a rarity because uh, I can actually sit back actually for a bit in this episode because it's not been me choosing the music. So, Dave, this is your track. 
Yeah, so I'm quite surprised we have never played a track by this particular individual before, but I have gone and uh, and, and got permission to play this this song. Uh, this is from an artist that I've played on the Bugcast, you know, some other podcast irrelevant to this, since right in its very, very early days. I've interviewed him at least three times. We're in constant, well, reasonable, constant contact. But he has released a song for Christmas, and he released it at the time of recording this, exactly one week ago. So this is Mark Marshall with Santa Claus is Back in Town. Back, you will see me coming in a big black. 
Welcome back. So, in this next segment, we are going to review a very tenuously Christmassy named application called Cherry Tree. And trees are Christmassy because Christmas trees and cherry appears in Christmas cakes. Therefore, this is extremely Christmassy. Is it not, Kevy? What did you think of Absolutely. Cherry Tree? Absolutely. You couldn't get a Christmassier app if you tried. Aye, so... This is actually just a pretty standard, to be honest, electronic notepad. And we can't actually say too much that's uh, about any more function, because literally, that's what it is. It's a notepad. It's an array of small icons along the top when you open it. And most of them are pretty standard formatting. You know, you get your standard kind of save, open, new formatting stuff. There's two panes in front of you. One is on the left is thin, and the one on the right is your kind of main screen and takes up most uh, of the... So your main pane and takes up most of the screen. And the background of these is white. You know, so I mean, as far as starting up, I thought, why have I chosen this apart from the name? Actually, actually, there is no reason why I chose it apart from the name. The name got me to choose it. So I thought, right, okay, let's just see. So... I first of all started to type and nothing happened. And I'm going, uh, okay. Click on the main screen, start to type, nothing happened. Actually, I started clicking about and I found on the left pane, I had the option of when I right clicked, I went add node and okay, let's add node. Now I didn't know beforehand that this was a hierarchical application. So I knew that you were going to kind of make notes. And you could have notes or sub-notes from that note. So I did kind of know about that. Actually, I did notice as well, when I actually right-clicked and went add node, it's actually the very first icon on the top left, which uh, would have been the sensible one to press. So, but anyway, who needs to, who needs manuals? We go in there uh, uh, foolhardy, definitely. <laughs> so I thought, right, let's actually have a try this, because I was discussing this with uh, my co-host before the show, that I have got TuxJam notes in here, there, and everywhere. There are some on my tablet, there are some on my phone, there are some on my laptop, there are some on most of them are on my desktop. There are some on some web-based services, and they're all over the place. And if I ever wanted to look them up, I would really have a problem, because they're just everywhere. So I thought, right, let's actually do this. So I clicked, made a first node called a TuxJam, and then made a sub-node, and I called it, well, it says sub-node. Should this not really be called, given it's called a cherry tree, should not be called a branch. But anyway, that's just my opinion. And made a branch 107. So selecting a new node brings up a wee window, and this asks you to give the node a name, and whether to make it bold. You know, there are options for what colour you want it, and what icon you want it, if, if you want to use that. Uh, there are options, do you want the text to be rich text, in which case you can format it a wee bit. And that's a default option. You can have plain text or automatic syntax highlighting if you want to use this more to program with it rather than actually just text. And one thing is I looked up my word. There are loads of programming languages available. We want to talk about retro. Yeah, there's modern and retro there. I just thought 
after actually recently, relatively recently, doing open risk OS, I thought, let's see, is Pascal programming there? That's what I learned. Pascal programming on. Yep, Pascal's there. <laughs> so anyway, I'm not here to program. So the other thing I liked was that straight away it said, what tags would you like? So you could have tags to use in the search. Uh, you don't have to, but you can use tags. And it also actually gives you the option, do you want it for this node only, or do you want to also include the sub nodes when you, when you search? So yeah, I quite like that, I must admit. So I started typing and I was, I had read a wee bit by this point. So let's actually see what this is. I can't just say, yes, I typed and they appeared on screen. It's, we need to go a bit more in depth for a review. So I thought, what am I expecting? And one thing that it said was that it had an automatic spell checker and I just typed in gibberish, press space and no red line, no anything. And I was like, Oh, Oh, this is a bit odd. So I double checked online and it says, yes, there is. It's now oddly enough. It's they're going for really, if you're in plain text, you do not apparently get this. I didn't trace it out, should have, but uh, you don't get this. It's only on rich text, but it's not on by default. It's not difficult. All you got to do is click on the tools menu and at the top, it's a very first option, uh, spell check, switch on. So after switching it on, it it worked actually quite well, but... It did give me a couple of times where there were very interesting misspellings. Like I had one letter out and the thing it was trying to suggest was like a totally different word. And I'm going, okay, right? <laughs> so yeah, that, that bit was interesting. Right? So I'll just leave it at that. And then I thought, right, let's see, is this purely text? Can I insert images? Yep, there's an option there to insert an image. This went smoothly, but this certainly is not anything that you would use if you were making a web publishing a web page or a magazine or anything like that. I mean, you certainly could do an HTML if you're on a web page, but most people these days probably don't do pure text HTML. Probably will use a program majority. So select the image, brings up a window, and it shows you a preview of it. It gives you the option to rotate it 90 degrees or flip it or also resize it. Now, once you place it, there is no option to drag this around, or I couldn't find one anyway. But you can cut and paste the image, so that does work. Text cannot be wrapped around the image either, apart from the one line where it's put on. You can't have it like we've got on TuxJam, where the image is on the right and the the text, where well, usually we put the icon on the right in the show notes and the text flows down the left. You couldn't do that. And the other thing I noticed was the image can't be resized using the mouse. The only way is if you want to change the image size, click on the image, click properties, and then click edit. Now, one thing I did like was having to type in the exact pixels you wanted the image was a bit of a paste. But if you typed in one, they, by default, it kept the proportions. So I did quite like that, I must admit. So if you just said, right, I want to make it 150 pixels wide, it automatically adjusted the height. So yeah, the other feature that worked very well was the inclusion of uh, bullet points. Now you could just have it as simple bullet points, or you could have them as incremental numbering. There's a to-do list option, which will convert each new line, as you have to have pressed a return after this, into a to-do list with a tickable box. So the box itself, you can either have blank, you can be ticked, or it can be crossed as well. So you've got the, the options there. 
Adding links is easy as in any word processor. It's simply a case of uh, highlight a word, click on the hyperlink icon, which is a standard one that you would be well used to, and put in paste or type in your URL. When working with multiple nodes, this is actually a feature I quite like, to be honest. Initially, I thought, oh, it's just listing them all as a tab on the top. And what I realized was it actually doesn't list them all because I thought this is going to get crazy. I think it'll be all, you know, a bit like Firefox or something where you've got 40 tabs open. No, it will only show you the last three you've visited. And when I was flicking in between, it was actually quite handy because, you know, you're not liable to go between 40 at one time. You might work between like two or three. So actually, I really like that. So it's, it looked nice and it actually stopped it from being too cluttered. The search function, it, it actually worked really nicely. You can search by title or by content or by tags. And you have the option to search within one node only or in the entire bit. So again, I like those features. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, I'm really liking this, the organizational potential here. I had a wee squint online. I just thought, what's anybody else using this for? And actually came up with some good ideas, to be honest. The one that actually I really liked was somebody who had, who was a keen cook, a bit like myself, because I really do like cooking. And they had actually separated their recipes all onto this. They had a file that was just recipes and it was the top layer was literally where it came from. And then, you know, break it down to snacks, main meals, etc. And, I really uh, thought that was something that I could do. I mean, it's not quite, it's like a, probably a kind of hybrid almost. It's not quite a database. It's not a pure notepad either. It's got so much more. But one thing I did think of was this would be useful if I could get this. So if I could have this to-do list on my phone, if I could get this list here or these bullet points on my phone. So I thought, right, let's have a look. So I went onto the website, couldn't find anything to do with an Android client, which was a shame. But then I thought, wait a minute, this is open source. Where is it hosted? So I went on to GitHub and there was a discussion there. And that's what I found out. This is actually maintained by a really small team. I think there's only like three people odd working on this. So somebody had asked a question for a feature request for an Android app, but they were quite honest and said, it's a long-term goal, but right now they had neither the expertise nor the time to take on this venture. And they said, we're happy for anybody to do this, but as long as they state and declare that it is an unofficial app, it's not officially connected to Cherry Tree. As is usual in open source, sadly, there was a good few flame wars going on with people arguing about nothing, but being quite nasty about it. And then I went a bit further down and I discovered that there was kind of one that had started and fizzled out and the other one that was started more recently. It was like started in 2020, but it seemed to have gone. There's another one which started in May 2022. This is called Sour Cherry, and it's still been actively developed, but it's only one guy doing this. So he says himself, it's not, he's not putting all his time and effort into it. He's doing it as and when he can. And he's doing it because he likes Cherry Tree. So I thought, right, let's actually download this. Let's give this a try. What I did was I thought, right, I know you said you two are probably going to say, look, I've already got own cloud for this or Nextcloud. Yeah, you're probably right. But to be honest, having played around with Nextcloud, I don't have that much of a use for it. So I didn't really continue with it on. So I thought, let's see, can I use this? So with the Sour Cherry, I could do text editing, but only basic. I couldn't do anything. A lot of the stuff isn't quite there yet, but you can edit with basic text stuff. That's not a problem. 
you can look at it, no, no bother. So what I decided was, like, right, wait a minute, I've got sync thing on my phone. Let's just put the file I'm working on into the sync thing folder on my computer. And right enough, it goes there. Everything worked nicely. So I had a to-do list. I had a shopping list, etc. I was showing the wife she's not yet convinced. You know, I'm try- trying to get her convinced to actually see if this works. Because so often she's uh, she's terrible for writing things down on a piece of paper, losing the piece of paper, and then rewriting the paper and forgetting what she had. Half the stuff she got. I was saying to her, look, you could actually just type this in and then you can get it at a later point. You can edit it if you want. The second part's not really part of the review, but I just thought it's worth including because this is a real win for open source. Small group of people and people building on top of it. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But if you do fancy to organize notes, this is something where I would actually highly recommend. Yes, if you have Nextcloud, this is, there is no point in you having this. But if like me and you've maybe not so much got a use as such for Nextcloud and you don't want to go down the route of actually the setup, then this is a viable alternative, I would say. Right. So, Dave, how did you get on with this? Well, as is often the case, you've pretty much taken the wind out of my sails on this one because I already use a note-taking app for work purposes and I already use a note-taking app for home and podcasting purposes. And the one I use at home is, <laughs> is Nextcloud. So unfortunately, going into this and looking at this application might have had slightly the wrong mindset to be able to provide an objective review. The one I use at work is called Dendron, which is actually a a plugin for VS Code. It is open source. We could potentially review it in the future. I don't think there are any immediate plans for doing that. I'm using Nextcloud Text, the text app, to write my review notes for this show. So if it seems like I'm comparing... Yeah, sorry, but I am. Trying to step away from this and look at this from a much more objective perspective is that Cherry Tree is very much a graphical application. I know that sounds really, really obvious, but it is kind of graphical plus plus. Everything is WYSIWYG, all right? So the whole layout of it, it screams, I suppose, word processor more than note-taking app. So everything requires explicit formatting, a bit like Word does. So if you want something bolded, you type it, you highlight it, you press bold. Or you can press bold, type something, and then press bold again just to turn bold off. Where I'm going with this, as I'm sure some people have already kind of twigged, this supports a lot of functionality, but the one thing it does not support is Markdown. I am a huge fan, a huge, enormous fan of Markdown. And I was genuinely hoping that it would support it, and it clearly doesn't. However, on the flip side, there are a number of graphical elements that a lot of other note-taking apps don't support, like tables of contents, like I think you call it LaTeX is the official name of it, which is the mathematical notation language. It also has an embedded terminal built in, which I think you mentioned earlier on, Kevy, uh, that you can use to execute code blocks that exist within your notes. And I can see a real benefit to that kind of feature. I would definitely see that as a, as a plus. One thing I also noticed is that it supports what it calls today's node. It's like a journal page. It's called insert today's node. So it'll create a brand new node for you, a new note with today's date on. And it does it in a very structured format. It'll create a top level node based on the year. So I've got one called 2023. It'll then create a sub node based on the month. So it's called December. 
And then you'll have another one that's then, which is the actual note where you'll enter your note detail, which is like day of month, day of week. So it'll say today's, for example, will be 13 wed. And that's a really nice touch. There is a downside to that, which I'll go on to in a second. But as Kevin quite rightly pointed out, and he, he made a big deal of, which is quite right, is that Cherry Tree does support tags. Metadata on objects like these is really, really important, particularly for searching. Nextcloud does support tags. Dendron does not. Now, it is possible to reorganize nodes and subnodes within the tree that you've created simply by picking them up, dragging them, and dropping them wherever you want them to appear, which is, is really nice. But the one thing I did notice is that there is a stupidly large proportion of the menuing system, like the menu at the top of the, of the application, dedicated to doing exactly the same stuff. And I think that overcomplicates things. If you want to do something in with a particular node, go to the node and right-click on it, and it'll give you the options. But then those same options are also available in the tree menu. So it's, I think it's, it's redundancy. A personal opinion, of course. When it comes to the actual data file, so that the file of your of your of your notes, there are a number of different formats that you can store that in. Uh, one of them is a SQLite file, which you can optionally encrypt inside a zip file. You can create a single XML file, which can also be encrypted inside a, a zip file, or you can create it in like a folders files based format, according to the Unix philosophy, where everything is stored in a text file. But the formatting or the layout of that particular directory structure is not particularly intuitive, in my opinion. If it was pure text, you'd be able to go into it and modify the data using a text editor. Ultimately, you can't do that because it's not obvious where your files are. You know, you know where the files are, but it's not obvious which file is the one that you're actually looking for. At the risk of over-comparing, that is something that both Nextcloud and Dendron implement incredibly well. From an aesthetic point of view, again, this is a, my opinion, the GUI just seems like a bit of a mess to me. I use dark mode. I use dark mode extensively. And the interface in dark mode is a mishmash of dark elements and light elements. Like there are some parts of the interface, like the tree view on the left and the header bar just above the notes that I think gives you the note title or possibly the note path is in light mode, whereas everything else is in dark. So it, it doesn't work well for me. The menuing system, as already mentioned, not a huge fan of. I don't know. I really don't wish to sound offensive at all in what I'm saying here as, as, as a whole. But I think the developers had a great opportunity here to make a very, very simple note-taking application. But in the opinion of this reviewer, I think they've overcomplicated it. I think it's a lot more messy than it needs to be. Ultimately, the tools that I use currently do almost exactly the same as Cherry Tree does. So, Kevy, you called it and you got the nail on the head there. This is not something I'm going to use because I'm already using tools that are equivalent to, if not better than, what Cherry Tree can offer. Of course, that is subjective. But this is likely to be a really good application, a good starter application for somebody who doesn't currently use a note-taking app, specifically a linked note-taking app, because the ability to be able to, to link to other notes within an existing note I'm kind of using the words note and node interchangeably here, I do apologise. To be able to link to one from the other is a really, really great feature. So if you're building up documentation or you're building up just a daily journal, you want to be able to link to, to other things that you've written, absolutely brilliant. Really, really good. Functionally, it's as fully featured as any other note-taking app out there, potentially even more so in some cases. But for me, I'm just finding it just 
too clunky and non-intuitive to the way that I personally work. So it is a good app. I think it has it has a lot of functionality that people would use, but it's not something I would personally be considering using or switching to. Oh, that's good, actually, that we are not exactly of the same opinion. So it's good to hear differing opinions. Mm. So, Andrew, how was your opinion? Well, I'll keep it fairly brief, because I think between the two of you, you've covered a lot of ground, and I don't want to repeat anything you've said. One thing I would say is, uh, since I'm working in Slackware, I would immediately, and in this case I certainly did, go and look for a Slack build, and there wasn't a Slack build. So then I thought, well, I I can build it myself from source. I've done that before. It's not a problem. And then immediately when I did that, I thought, hmm, there's some dependencies here, which I could go and get and build. And not a huge problem, but a lot of these dependencies are quite peculiar. And I don't think I would need them for anything else. So I'm not going to go that way. I was quite impressed at the range of options it provided for downloading the application and one of them was an app image which if you don't know is a sort of very self-contained I guess it's some kind of compressed archive uh, that you can run in Linux and I thought that it would contain all the dependencies that you would need at runtime of course when I build it it's compile time dependencies and building dependencies that you would need so I didn't expect that there'd be any trouble with app image but it refused to launch and it said it refused to launch because it had to have libti, so l libti is in t h a i, as in the, as in Thailand. So the application wouldn't run unless it had support for the Thai language. Now I don't need the Thai language, and so unsurprisingly, I don't have libti on my system, and I'm not going to install it just for one application. So, and I also should say that. It's a little bit unusual. I've been very busy lately. And on other occasions, I would have temporarily installed LibTie. That was a Slack build. But I thought, well, there might be others. You know, if, if it wants Thai, it's going to want Japanese, Chinese, God knows what. So I thought, no, I'm not going to go down that road either. Uh, so it just so happened, one of the things I was busy with was uh, d- doing some testing of an application of Windows inside a virtual machine. So I thought, well, it's got Windows builds. So I got a Windows build, which it turned out was inside a 7-zip archive. So ironically, I had to download and compile P7-zip on Linux in order to extract the contents of this archive. And then the instructions were, this is the instructions on the Cherry Tree website, hunt around inside the unzipped archive until I found a .exe file to run. Went, okay, a bit weird, frankly, <laughs> but I'll do that. And I did, and I found it, and I ran it, and it worked fine. If you're a Windows user, being told to download a 7-zip archive, which Windows can't unzip natively, and then hunt around for an .exe somewhere inside it, yeah, isn't the most <laughs> user-friendly experience, but... Fine, okay, we're a FOSS podcast. It's a very unusual thing for me to do to try something out in Windows. But as I say, I did in this occasion. A bit odd. Now, after I launched the application, I think I created some nodes and subnodes before a pop-up appeared asking me about how I would like to store my content. Now, I don't think I asked it to save anything, so I don't know why after I created some nodes and nodes and subnodes specifically, why it then decided that I had to store it. And I was a bit puzzled. In fact, I was so puzzled that I just cancelled the window because I didn't understand what it was asking me to do. But then later on, it, it reappeared again. And then I thought, oh, and Dave's already mentioned this. 
it asked me how I would like to save it. So I could save it as an SQL light file with ZZIP compression, optionally with a password to encrypt it. At this point, I got very confused because I had a subnode window asking me to input information that for some reason appeared in front of the window asking me where I'd like to save what I'd done so far, which was puzzling because I hadn't actually asked it to save anything. Now, eventually I realised why it was doing this. And I would say either before you do anything else, it should have asked me where would you like to save your work as the first step, or it shouldn't have asked me anything until I had elected to click the save button or save as or something. And then it should have prompted me, where would you like to save this? How would you like to save it? So this was not user friendly. And in fact, it required knowledge of what 7-zip was, what compression was, what SQLite was. So really, if you're a, a beginner user, this would just be completely baffling and confusing. And actually, I found it quite confusing. So anyway, so I got past that, understood what was going on. And I elected to save it as a SQLite file with no encryption and no compression. I then was quite impressed at the richness of content that I could put into my note. I could put in tables. As Dave mentioned, I could have LaTeX formatting. So LaTeX isn't just for mathematics, but it's a whole document creation syntax, although its main power that as Dave said, is is for mathematics. And that appeals to me because I am somebody who does a bit of maths now and again. So yeah, I appreciated that. Not only that, I had you could input code. So I wrote a little bit of a little fragment of dummy C code. And not only did it include that, but it had some basic syntax highlighting, which worked quite well. I was able to insert an image into all of this as well, as Kevy has detailed. Uh, though it wasn't drag and drop, it looked like drag and drop would work, but it didn't. I had to import it via the menu or the button. I did hit a bug, a fairly major bug. When I tried to toggle various formats, so for example, if I selected some text and then tried to make it strike through, a little window would open and it would say, error, no text was selected, but text was selected the text I wanted strictly to apply to. This applied to every format, whether it was superscript, subscript, headings, whatever. It always said no text was selected, even if it was. So that was a, a pretty clear bug, to be honest. Yeah, that didn't hugely impress me, I have to say. Hmm, I wonder if that's just a Windows one, because I've got it actually open in front of me. I've got all my texture notes on this, and yeah. strike throughs just worked fine. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it could. Yeah, uh, I, I did wonder that because I didn't. Uh, yeah, but clearly that was a bug. But yeah, maybe restricted to Windows, as you say. One thing that did impress me was a huge range of import possibilities. It could import from a lot of different sources, including other note taking apps. Weirdly, it could even import from its own file formats. Now, I was a bit puzzled by this because why would you import from your own file format? Isn't that the same as open? Well, clearly not, because it must be that you could import a subnode into a node or something like that. I didn't quite dig into why it could import from its own format, which I think was the .ctb file extension, as it happens. Maybe that's useful. I didn't quite see why, but yeah. But I have to say, I have to credit it again for having a huge range of import possibilities. So that's really my main criticism of it. I am very much a person who likes to see a tool, sort of the sort of Unix, Linux philosophy of one tool that does one thing and does it well, 
rather than a, a multi-tool approach. That That is the philosophy I like to take. Cherry Tree is trying to do an awful lot for a note-taking app. And I think as somebody already said, it actually resembles a word processor more than a note-taking app. But it's not a replacement for LibreOffice or Microsoft Word or Windows. It certainly isn't a word processor. It's not a note-taking app in my book. It's far too complicated for that. I use Nextcloud Notes. My show notes for this that I'm reading off right now are taken using Nextcloud Notes. And what I like about that is it's very simple. It supports markdown and rich text, but not much else. You know, it's note-taking. It's not... It's not got images and LaTeX and tables. I don't want this of a note-taking app. I want it to be simple. I want it to work on my phone when I've only got my phone. And I want to be able to work on it using any old text editor that I fancy when I'm on my laptop. And Nextcloud Notes does all of those things extremely well. So yes, Cherry Tree does a lot of things that Nextcloud Notes does not do. But there are things I don't want from a note-taking app. I want rapid text entry. That's what I want with a, a very basic structuring, which Markdown will provide. So, yeah, if you want a desktop app, and it is only a desktop app with almost word processor, but not quite word processor features, then Cherry Tree is what you're looking for. But unfortunately, that is not what I'm looking for. So... Yeah, it falls between a rock and a hard place or literally between a word processor and a note-taking app for me. So, yeah, I couldn't see much use for it. I'm sure other people out there will find a use for it, but just not for me. Yeah, no, that's actually good, though. Like I said, we're all differing opinions. So, uh, like I said, I'm not complaining of that at all. So, yeah, like I said, if you're wanting a... uh, if, If it sounds like something you're interested in, then, yeah, go and check it out. If not... You have the, you have also have the freedom to say no. <laughs> right then. So, Andrew, I believe your track is next. So, what did you line up for us? Well, it is uh, an artist I discovered in Magnitude called Arya Frankfurter. Not German, not originally German, or maybe originally German, but he lives in uh, California in the USA. And the track is God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen.
And now we come to the last segment of the show. And for a change, we actually do have some feedback. So people have been contacting directly, though. So, Andrew, what feedback can you relay to us? Well, I I got some nice feedback from Dave Morris. I want to say nice, nice and specific on things that we mentioned in Gifts for Geeks Talks Jam 106. So I was lucky enough to meet Dave and Ken Fallon. I think I mentioned that previously a couple of weeks ago. But she sent me this in Telegram last week after listening to Gifts for Geeks. Uh, first of all, he mentions, we I mentioned, I think, some products from Lidl uh, binoculars and he says he was told by an HPR person that there are Lidl stores in the US but mainly in the eastern states uh, Aldi or Aldi have been there longer apparently and are spread more widely on the second point this came up last week he g- gave me some more information about his ordering of the Raspberry Pi 5 he pre-ordered his in September and then got an update in late October saying he would be receiving it in November which he did so that's how he got his Raspberry Pi 5 before any of the rest of us, unsurprisingly, by getting his finger out and ordering it in advance, which I did not do. And then finally, on the Gifts for Geeks episode, I mentioned a workbench also from Lidl. And Dave has actually bought one of these. And he says it's fine, though not as good as a old Black & Decker, which he's had since the 1970s. Let's face it, nothing is as good now as it was in the 1970s or before. Uh, They don't make them like they used to. He says the little top is faced with MDF, but the black and Deckert's a chunk of plywood. Having two is good if you're making desktops or trimming doors or similar, I find. I'm very impressed that uh, Dave trims his own doors. Kudos to you, Dave. Talking of Dave's, Dave, I believe you have some more feedback. Yeah, absolutely. So just scouring the Fediverse, where you can find us at uh, podcast.social slash at TuxJam. We have had a number of threads started by various people, obviously our superfan and recently voted in archivist, official TuxJam archivist, Solar Spider, has been promoting us left, right and centre. Our last episode uh, he posted about as well. Uh, So thank you to Peter. Uh, R.L. Dane, who we have mentioned on the show before, is also spending a lot of time pimping our show out to various other people as well. So we really do appreciate your support too. I think that was pretty much all from the Fediverse. However, we did also have a comment in one of our Telegram groups from Al, who is one of the hosts of the Currently on Hiatus Admin Admin podcast. Without actually using these words, I think he's accusing us of making him spend money. Because after our uh, Gifts for Geeks episode, where I recommended the Datafrog SF2000 portable handheld games console, he went out and bought one. So <laughs> he, I, th- I believe he has placed it under the tree and will be opening it at Christmas. And Kevy, I've just realised it was you, so thanks for dropping us in that one, has suggested that both myself and Al... Uh, record a segment for Tux Jam or and or uh, HPR as a kind of a, a, a combined review of the device, which I think is a great idea, and I know Al's up for it as well. Thanks, Al, for letting us know that you've uh, you've gone and bought this as well, and I I genuinely hope that it lives up to the hype that I gave it last episode. Yeah, well, there was one other bit of feedback I got from Peter in person as well. Well, not in person, obviously because he's on the other side of the pond, but uh, I was speaking to him on Tuesday night, and he had actually said he had looked up the arcade rug, and he really wants one. 
<laughs> so it's gone down very well. Yes. I, 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 I don't know if I told you, I, I sent the link to Caroline uh, over that rug when we were when you, when you mentioned it on the Gifts for Geeks. And her, Caroline's response was just simply, ooh. <laughs> so, and I think I mentioned at the time, we are in the market for a new rug, but I don't think it's going to fit in with the decor we have at the moment. So we will be redecorating. So, uh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> at yes. least uh, you got more positive response than I got. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think there was some less chance of me getting that rug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let me get this straight, Dave. You're going to paint sprites eight by eight sprites on the wall, so you can justify having a arcade rug. I can dream, right? Yes, and he's going to replace the bookcase with a couple of arcade cabinets as well, just to kind of fit in. Yeah, 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 because I have more money than cents. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Right, there is an event that hasn't actually happened yet, but by the time this show is released, it's already going to have happened, so we're just going to mention it, we're not going to go into any detail. A pod crawl took place, well, it's about to take place on Saturday the 16th, Given it's the 14th right now at time of recording, like I said, there's no chance we're going to get it beforehand. So we hope if you're listening and you were there that you enjoyed it. And if you're listening and you weren't there, then why not? And please come along to the next one. Yeah, wibbly wobbly, timey-wimey thing going on there. (laughs) Yes, I. That's it. So if you want to get a hold of us, then you can. You can send an email to the show. It's tuxjam at otherside.network. If you want to check us out on social media, it's tuxjam at podcast.social. If you want to get a hold of us individually, then to be honest, I'm not really anywhere these days apart from Telegram when I'm at kevy49. Uh, I am at kevy49 on Twitter, never use it. I'm at kevy on mastodon.me.uk. Again, I've not closed the account. I just I'm guilty of not using it. I'm not really that much of a social media person these days. Who has the time? But uh, I am still around, and you, I will eventually get you. It might be six months late, especially if you contact me on social media. But, uh, yeah. So, Dave, how do people get a hold of yourself? Yeah, but to be fair, I, I don't think I've ever really been active on social media. If somebody mentions me, I'll pick it up and respond to it. But otherwise... You know, ambient messages, I tend to miss those completely. But uh, I'm the love bug on Telegram and Twitter and Facebook and and probably still MySpace, actually. But you can also find me on the Fediverse over at thelovebug at mastodon.me.uk as well. Uh, and if you want to get in contact with me, I'm McNalu, M-C-N-A-L-U, on Twitter, on Mastodon, uh, the same server that Dave just mentioned, uh, and on Telegram as well, McNallu. Basically, if you see a McNallu on the internet, then that's probably me. And uh, uh, if you say something geeky at me and I don't respond enthusiastically, then it's an imposter. Let me know. <laughs> right then. So we are going to bring this show to an end. It is the last show of the year and it's traditional in Scotland to sing All Lang Syne. So this has become a bit of a kind of thing. I've been trying to get All Lang Syne for the final track, last few years. And yes, of course, I'm just already doing the handshake, so we can, we can easily do that. So the this one is by Highland Saga, and we really do have to thank Highland Saga for actually letting us play this, because uh, they don't release it under Creative Commons, but I did email them, and they got back to me within a couple of days. 
So yeah, go check highlandsaga.com out. Uh, they seem to have plenty of music on uh, YouTube. So yeah, have a listen to that if you want. Well, that's, of course, after listening to this track here. So on that note, it's a goodbye from me, Anak. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And it's a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from me as well. No witty sign-off from me this time round. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we will see you in 2024. Listening to a member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more about our shows on otherside.network.